Welcome to another edition of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, Andrew Boy on social media at MMA LOT. And this week we're going over UFC Columbus, which is headlined by a heavyweight fight between Curtis Blades and Chris Dawkins. Somewhat put together on short notice, if I'm not mistaken. But still, we're going to get these heavyweights to throw down this Saturday. And it's going to be the second straight event that we're actually going to have in front of a crowd. Obviously, last week was in UFC London. Uh, we had a sold out crowd over there at the O2 Arena. I'm not 100% sure if the Columbus show has been sold out, but I'm sure there's a lot of UFC fans just craving and itching to get back into a full arena of other UFC MMA fans and uh, yeah I think it's going to be a great crowd we got some great fights on tap as well that should produce some fireworks not to mention we got hometown boy Matt Brown coming in and fighting another game veteran like Brian Barbarena we got a number one contender fight in the flyweight division between Askar Askarov and Kai Kara France uh, a couple other interesting fights, weird placement in terms of the main event with Alexa Grasso taking on Joanne Wood in the Coleman event. Not really understanding the placement there, especially considering there's so many other great fights on the card. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where the fights are placed. It's just whether they take place or not. And I'm hoping knocking on wood, recording this on Tuesday, that none of these fights fall out because I put in the research, I put in the work, and I would love nothing more than to see these fights actually play out come Saturday night. So remember, it's a 4 p.m. Eastern start time as well with these fight nights. And uh, before I kick anything off, I want to give a quick shout out to my guy, Flying Brian J, uh, finally shipping out his shirts that a lot of people were ordering a couple months ago. Not 100% sure if they are still being sold, but they are nice. They fit very well. The material is awesome. Uh, and if he is still selling them, I believe the majority, if not all of the profits, are actually going to a charity. Uh, I'll post a link in the description below if anybody wants to get their hands on any of them as well. Again, not 100% sure if he's still selling them. I will reach out to him after I record this podcast and find out. And if he is, link will be in the description below. Uh, they got this. They got black and yellow as well. So a ton of great, um, or sorry, black shirt with yellow uh, design is what I meant. Um yeah, he got, he's got plenty of uh, great quality things on there that you guys should check out. So make sure you guys check out my guy, Flying Brian J. But as we always do, and sorry, sorry, one last thing I want to just tee up before we actually get into the, the podcast here. Uh, I'm going old school. I'm going one shot through for this entire podcast. Um, I want to try this out once again. Uh, it eats up a decent amount of my time in terms of editing each little video and then putting it together and processing each one and then putting it together afterwards. So I want to try this out for this one week, see how it goes, uh, and then we'll decide whether we're going to stick with it or go back to doing the uh, each individual um, breakdown recorded uh and then stitched together afterwards. So uh, let's get into the UFC London betting recap, which was a slight loss, which halted our three event winning streak. Uh, no lock of the night play, but the two plays that I felt quite confident in did uh, shit the bed. So let's go in the, the uh, order of largest bets to smallest bets. Largest bet was in the main event, two and a half units at plus 109 on Alexander Volkov over Tom Aspinall. Uh, I got to give my respect to Aspinall, man. He went out there and he wrestled a lot better than I expected him to. Uh, Volkov did not see those takedowns coming uh, because you got to credit Aspinall and how effective he was in terms of timing those takedowns and then eventually doing some good work on top. Uh, obviously, uh, Volkov was able to get up after the first takedown, but after that, Aspinall landed another takedown and it seemed like he was a immediately working for that arm lock which he got and uh, forced Alexander Volkov to tap immediately so first time uh, Volkov has been tapped that early in a fight at least at this stage of his career I know earlier in his career he was uh, struggling with it but it had been years and years before he had gotten submitted in that fashion or even finished in that type of fashion so credit to Tom Aspinall um, yeah I, it's still up there in terms of what his cardio is going to look like if he stretched over five rounds but if he has every single skill you know takedowns jiu-jitsu power speed all that and he can get these fighters out of there within the first round round and a half then I guess we'd never need to find out about the cardio because you can go out there and just get the do job done. So credit to everybody that was on the Aspinall side. I was very adamantly on the uh, Alexander Volkov side. I know when to take it on the chin. I know when to say I was wrong. I was wrong. And uh, credit to everybody that was on the Aspinall 
Gennaro's side. Secondly, uh, actually, you know what? My, my other bet on that fight was the under three and a half at one and a half units at minus 109. That was a little bit of a hedge in case Aspinall went out there and knocked out Volkov quickly. But he ended up submitting him. Thankfully, it still cashes the under three and a half as a minor hedge on the main event there. So uh, plus 1.38 units there, which means we lost about 1.22 units uh, overall in the main event. Uh, so a decent hedge, you know, not losing that entire two and a half units just on Volkov because of that early finish. Uh, next up, the co-main event, another spot I felt quite good about. Uh, Dan Hooker gets finished by Arnold Allen. That's minus two units at minus 111. Uh, yeah, you know, Allen hasn't finished a fight in what eight years uh seven years since he got his last ko uh not really known as a power puncher nowadays and really thought that dan hooker would do a good job in terms of getting out of those bad positions that he found himself in but man it looked like he was stuck in mud he just could not move at all um the difference between allen and aspinall's performance i saw a lot more from aspinall than i saw from allen so there is a good likelihood that i will still fade allen moving forward not saying like i'm on a, a, a mission to fade allen uh every single time he goes out there i bet on him in the fight prior uh against Sudik yusuf i thought he was a great spot there but if they actually put the calvin cater fight together i will more than likely have my money on Cal uh cater as i do think he's a much better minute winner his durability seems to be okay you know since the max holloway beating he took almost two years ago uh or a year and a half at this point in time but uh, yeah, if they make that fight, I'll probably still go on the Calvin Cater side. Credit to anybody that took Allen. Uh, yeah, Hooker, that weight cut was just not uh, good for him. And uh, yeah, he couldn't do anything to stop what Allen was doing that night. And then lastly, uh, the other win, Molly McCann. One unit at minus 124, that catches for 0.81 units. I felt pretty good about that bet and wish I went a little bit deeper on it. But uh, again, I, I like fading both of these women. I just decided that Molly McCann was the fighter not to fade that night. And luckily she came through with via devastating knockout, via spinning back out, boy, I believe it was. So all in all, minus 2.32 units on the night, minus 33% ROI. That halts a three-event winning streak, but... That does not halt the momentum and the confidence of your boy taking a minimal loss there and especially over the last four events i think that still only brings us down to like uh plus five units or plus six units or something like that but i like a couple spots on this upcoming card that i can't wait to break down for you guys uh just a reminder the patreon is where you guys are going to be able to find all the early plays uh all the plays are still free uh, especially now that i'm on a th not on a three event winning streak uh but the plays don't get released to the public until friday so that's the day before the fights more than likely lines start moving around that time i made my lock of the night play last night monday evening i believe it was uh and i also made another play on a, on a different uh fight um but yeah i'm really looking forward to to this lock of the night play because i feel pretty damn good about it and feel like it's going to cash and that'll be three straight lock of the night plays that cash if i can get my hand raised this weekend uh again you guys can find that on the patreon link is in the description below five bucks a month gives you early access to a bunch of stuff uh best bets and props article for the entire card prize picks tips a great discord community and i'm going to be adding a couple other things very shortly there uh going to be talking to the the members and seeing what else they would like to see on the patreon but I already feel like I drop so much on there for those guys, but I want to continue to give as much value to them as possible. And for five bucks a month, again, it's it's a great um, bang for your buck. Uh, very cheap, but uh, you get a ton of great and hard, earnest work in there as well. Lastly, shout out to CoolBet. Use promo code MMA. LOTN2, and that's uh, they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. It's a great site. Sometimes they're a little bit slow in terms of updating their odds, which allow you to you know take advantage of certain spots that you might have been sleeping on, or you can even parlay props, something that a lot of degenerates like myself like to do. So if you want to go out there and do that, make sure you guys check out CoolBet. They've been awesome to me. They've been awesome as bookmakers as well in terms of any issues that have come up with them. Very responsive, and they do a damn good job in terms of making things right. So make sure you guys check out CoolBet promo code MMALOTN2. That's the number two, and they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks. All right. Like I said, we're doing this in one shot. So I'm going to get right into the first fight. There's no need to uh, to mess around here. Uh, well, we're going to see how my voice and my durability and my stamina does since I haven't done a one-shot uh, breakdown like this by myself in a very long time. So we'll see how it goes. All right. First fight of the 
the night. We got Luis Saldana going up against Bruno Souza. We got minus 105 on uh, Saldana and minus 115 on Souza. Uh, there's even some places where you can see minus 120 on Saldana and plus 100 the return on Souza. So let's just call this a pick em fight pretty much, right? Both guys, mainly strikers, interested to see how they clash here, especially with their specialties, right? You got Souza who's coming from the Leo to Machida camp, who likes that wide karate style, very bouncy on his toes, likes to kind of you know, either blitz forward and use his attacks, straight shots down the middle, or blitz out of any uh, offensive attacks coming from his opponent. More often than not, he's on his back foot, which uh, optically doesn't really look the greatest for the judges, especially if his opponent is kind of pressing forward and, uh, you know, striking and actually throwing offense out there. The interesting thing about this fight is that Saldana actually shares the same coaches as a former foe of Bruno Souza, Kamala Kirk. Now, Kamala Kirk lost the decision to Bruno Souza that night in a fight that I expect to play out similar to this one. However, I don't think that Saldana will be as gun shy as Kamala Kirk was in that fight. Souza pretty much won that fight off of his back foot, but did blitz forward a couple times, and it was more than enough for the judges to believe that he was landing the more effective strikes. However, here with Saldana, I think we'll see Saldana land leg kicks from the outside, blitz forward when he needs to. Hopefully, he stays. Uh, discipline enough and doesn't get caught with one of those patented uh, Leota Machida-esque counters but I think that Saldana has shown a good enough gas or sorry a good enough chin and durability that he should be able to see those shots coming and defend uh, properly or counter effectively with them as well I, I do like Saldana but the only thing is it seems like his gas tank really starts to wear down the longer a fight goes but specifically when it's against fighters that pressure him push him up against the cage or even put some sort of pace on him right we see him have early success against guys like Jordan Griffin and even Austin Lingo but as that fight starts to prolong gets into the second round we see him start to slow down and start to crack and break under the pressure of his opponents Luckily for him against Bruno Souza, he's not going to have much of that to worry about. As I do think that Bruno Souza, uh, you know, he, he's going to be on his back foot for the majority of this fight, just waiting for his opportunities to counter, which will allow Luis Saldana to pretty much fight this fight at his pace, at his activity level. And that should allow him to go a full 15 minutes if he's required to do so in this spot. So I, I do like Saldana just a little bit here. I do think it will be you know a mediocre paced fight like i don't think it's going to be super high paced because that will force saldana to slow down and i don't think it's going to be a super low pace because i think that saldana has learned from his uh teammates uh blunders in the past of not being active enough against the guy like souza but i still do think that we can see this go the full 15 minutes which is why i don't mind the fight goes to decision at minus 200 i think that's an accurate line here i did actually play the under in the souza bogdazarian fight in souza's ufc debut which did come in uh, on short notice but Souza's inability and lack of wanting to engage did not allow that fight to go to or fight doesn't go to decision to hit he was just way too lackadaisical in there I'm not sure if he was just trying to conserve his energy what it might have been then again who wants to get hit by a guy like Bogdazarian right maybe he opens up a little bit more here against a guy like Saldana but uh, I, I do think that both guys will show good durability in this spot. I don't think anybody will land cleanly enough to get a fight-ending type of situation going. But I do expect this fight to go the full 15 minutes. I like the fight goes to decision at minus 200. But in terms of an official prediction, I'm going to go with Luis Aldana. And I'll pick him to win this fight via decision. All right. Let's move on to the next fight here. A great flyweight scrap between David Dvorak and Matthias Nikolaou. We got minus 130 on Dvorak, plus 110 the return on Matthias Nikolaou. Now, I'm not 100% sure if the topology rankings are the actual UFC rankings as well, but they actually have Nikolaou at number eight and Dvorak at number nine. That is a sign of how competitive this fight should be. And the fact that it's the third, sorry, the second fight of the night is a huge disgrace, especially considering that these guys could be fighting for a title if they get another two or three wins right under their belt maybe even two wins for Dvorak as he's uh, on a three-fight winning streak especially inside the UFC right now uh fun fight I've always been a big fan of Matthias Nicolau I was glad the UFC decided to re-sign him and bring him back to the uh, to the big stage but he's largely underperformed right even though he's gone out there and beaten guys like Manel Cap and Tim Elliott 
his performances left a lot to be desired, right? He, he He's not going out there and beating these guys convincingly the way that I thought he would. The Tim Elliott fight was very close, and it even seemed like Tim Elliott put the, took the foot off the gas because James Krause gave him the confidence that he was up two rounds. So he kind of just, you know, laid on his back and allowed Matthias to kind of just grind out that third round and win that fight. Matthias has solid striking, you know, good power, decent combinations, but I think he's absolutely going to be outgunned on the feet against Dvorak, who's a very disciplined striker. The guy waits for his perfect opportunity to either counter or even just throw leg kicks, but he doesn't overextend. He doesn't, uh, you know, um, uh, he doesn't leave himself to really be countered because he throws with so much power and almost intimidates his opponent to kind of move backwards. But it, but he's very cognizant of, of countering his opponents. And it seems like anytime his opponent throws a strike, he's right back at them throwing one, two, three uh, strike combinations. And that's usually, you know, uh, frustrating his opponents and making them kind of back down and back off. I think for Nikolaou to have success in this fight, he's going to have to drag it to the ground. Because if he doesn't, I think he's going to get touched up on the feet. Now, Dvorak has some finishes on his record and finishing power, but Nikolaou has a pretty damn good chin, has very good durability, and I don't think he's going to struggle too much with the power that Dvorak puts on him in this spot. Um, I, I do like Dvorak. Um, I, I do think he's the rightful favorite. I can see him winning via decision, which is currently sitting at plus 155. Uh... But yeah, unless we see a huge change or even Nikolao tapping into the potential that we expected of him, I think he kind of gets uh, uh, put on his back foot for the majority of this fight and gets eaten up from range. So uh, I'm a big David Dvorak fan. Um, again, combinations, uh, great discipline, doesn't have really any wasted movement. His takedown defense looks very good as well, but this will obviously be the biggest test that he's faced to this point. And I think he'll pass it with flying colors. So uh, I like David Dvorak here. I'm going to take him to win this fight via decision. Now, one thing I almost forgot about during these uh, long uh, podcasts that I used to do for solo is that the throat starts to feel it. So let me just wet the whistle real quick and then we'll get back into these breakdowns. Ooh, that feels good. Nothing like some cold water to help fuel the rest of the podcast. All right, let's get into the next fight here. We got Manol Firo coming in at minus 400, taking on the veteran Jennifer Maya at plus 300. I believe Jennifer Maya is actually coming in on short notice in this spot as she did drop her last fight to Catelyn Shkagian way back in Jan... Well, not way back, but a month or two months ago in January. Uh, yeah, Manol Firo was originally scheduled to fight Jessica I. Uh, unfortunately, Jessica I is forced to pull out. <clears throat> And in steps um, Jennifer Maya. Now, there's a lot of question marks on Manoa Firo, right? She keeps coming in as this heavy favorite and people are trying to fade her and find the perfect fight to fade her with. Unfortunately, I think they're going to be, uh, you know, ripping up another ticket here if they're trying to go that value route and take the Jennifer Maya side of things here. Manofiro is a great striker who's improving every aspect of her game. And outside of the first loss that she had in her first fight of her career, she's been improving on a fight-to-fight basis. Heck, she's even pulling out takedowns in her last fight against Myra Bueno Silva, who on paper had the better jiu-jitsu, just was not able to show it that night. Firo is quite big for this uh, weight class as well. I believe she's coming in at 5'6". Let me just get that number correct again. Yeah, she's, she's coming at 5'7", compared to Jennifer Maya, who's going to be coming in at 5'4". Uh, so she'll have a 3-inch height advantage. Uh, and I think it's going to play out similar to the Catelyn Chikagian fight for Jennifer Maya, right? Catelyn did a really good job in terms of putting uh, output together from the outside, striking, throwing combinations, and then getting out of the way uh, from anything that Jennifer Maya was throwing in return. And I think that we'll see Firo kind of replicate that game plan, but maybe even get a finish in this spot because of how quick she is. Her speed will obviously be a huge advantage in this fight, not to mention how much power she throws with as well. You know, Jennifer Maya, it's been a long time she's, since she's been knocked out, but I feel like this is a, a perfect intersection of, of trajectories for these fighters uh, where Firo could absolutely put a stamp on this fight. Not to mention Jennifer Maya taking this fight on short notice, trying to right the wrong of her last fight, but I think she's biting off more than she can chew at this moment in time, and Firo should absolutely go out there and uh, do work against Jennifer Maya. 
Now, Maya is a great, you know, striker in her own right. Well, she's a solid striker in her own right. She has good kicks. She comes from the shooter box camp. But she has a decent jujitsu game as well if she requires it. But I just don't think that she's going to do a good job in terms of getting this fight to the ground. Uh, she has a 28 or 38% takedown defense uh, accuracy. Uh, Firo seems to do a good job in terms of, you know, always keeping her hips below her in terms of always, you know, uh, minding her balance like when she closes the distance she's bringing her feet with her and she's throwing her strikes and she's making sure that she's always balanced at all times because if there's a takedown that comes in it, uh, as a counter to her strikes she has enough space between her and her opponent that she can either push them off stuff the takedown or even pivot off and get off on the angle so their opponent uh you know whiffs on a takedown attempt and jennifer Maya is no you know habib or no you know Tatiana Suarez or anything in this division so I'd be surprised if she's even successful on any takedowns in this spot I think Firo is going to be very strong in this spot and it's going to cause Jennifer Amaya a lot of issues especially when they clinch up with each other so yeah I think Firo is worth the minus 400 chalk in this spot because I think she'll do a good job in terms of keeping this fight standing and then just replicate what Catelyn Chikagin did not a lot of fighters can do that right and I'm not saying that Firo is going to go out there and throw as many strikes as Chikagin does but I think we saw from the Mara Bueno Silva fight we saw from the Tabitha Ricci fight like again those are obviously not Jennifer Maya type fighters but we saw her implementing something that has given Jennifer Maya issues in the past and that's fighters that crash forward throw the combinations and then get out before getting touched and i think that's what we're going to see here from firo so uh, i'm big on firo i think she's you know uh she, she will more than likely be challenging for a title within the next year or two especially considering the lack of challengers out there for valentina shevchenko who finds herself fighting uh tyler santos in june this year but after that you know it's it's pretty much wide open if shevchenko goes in there and does what she does more than likely, Manon Firo is going to be the one uh, waiting for her in the wings. I'm expecting Firo having to take at least one or two more fights before she gets a title shot. But given the way she's dispatching of some of these chicks, given the way that I think she'll dispatch of Jennifer Maya, it's going to be very difficult to deny her of a title shot considering how impressive she has been. So give me some Manon Firo. Give me some Manon Firo inside the distance. Uh, and yeah, I, I think the, the hype train continues to roll on here at a pretty good clip. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Alias Cobb, uh, Kizriev going up against Dennis Tululian. Uh, absolutely butchered that name, but I'm going to do my best to make it better. But then again, I'm just going to go with Dennis for the rest of this podcast. Uh, in terms of odds, obviously heavy chalk on the Kizriev side. Uh, he's coming in at minus 600 now, plus 425 the return on Dennis Tululian. Uh a ton of steam coming in on Kizriev over the last couple of days, and rightfully so, right? Dennis is coming in on short notice in this spot, albeit he seems to be in shape, right? He's a big 185-pounder, and the fact that he didn't ask for a catch weight for this fight leads me to believe that this guy's just been in the training room just waiting for his opportunity to get the call up to the UFC. Uh, he recently, within the last year or two, moved over there to Extreme Couture, and you see him in the corners of some of his fighters, right, of those Extreme Couture guys. I think uh, he was in the corner of Sean Strickland last time around, if I'm not mistaken big 185er a striker with some decent power in his hands and uh Kizriev on the other side he's exactly what you expect from a Dagestani fighter likes the takedowns wants to get you there and just absolutely drown you there either with ground and pound or eventually find a submission to get you out of there but my slight concern in this spot is the crazy transformation that we've seen in Kizriev over the last five years if you guys go back and watch this fight with Artur Magomedov you see like a stick figure like the the the, the 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 video and picture is all grainy you barely see uh you, you know like the details of the fight but you can just see these stick figures in the distance kind of fighting each other and that's what Kizriev used to fight at 170 pounds he fought Husamar Polares at 170 pounds before he made his uh contender series debut then when he got to the contender series that's when he decided to go up to 185 pounds now it slowly seems like he's bulking and building up to that uh to that weight class but it is a little bit of concern that this is only going to be a second fight at 185 pounds he stands at 5'9 compared to the i believe it's 6'1 of dennis tulian uh let me just confirm that number real quick uh yeah six foot one for dennis 
and then you got uh, five nine for Kizriev. So Kizriev is going to be at a what one two three about a four inch reach or a height disadvantage. And this might be the first big middleweight that he's going to go up against. Are the takedowns going to come as easy for him? I, I think they will. Like Dennis still seems to struggle a little bit in terms of uh, you know shucking off takedowns. But even as a second last opponent, Ikram. Uh, let me just get the guy's name again here real quick for you guys. Uh, Ikram. Pa, 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 pa. Ikram Ali. Aliskarov uh, from Brave CF41. It took him into the third round to get uh, Dennis out of there. And I see the under one and a half uh, roughly hanging around minus 180 for this fight. I don't know if it's going to be that easy for Kizriev to get him out of there. Like, what if he struggles to get him down? And then in the clinch, what if Dennis just punishes him with knees up the middle? Like, that, those things are real, in my opinion. Those are possibilities in this fight. Not saying I'm trying to make a case to back Dennis as an underdog here. I don't think he wins this fight. I'm just trying to think that I th this could possibly go over the one and a half mark. Even the the Kizria via decision um, that intrigues me ever so slightly. Uh, that's currently sitting at plus seven hundred, plus five hundred on a couple of spots. Th that's absolutely a possibility. Again, it took like 11, 12 minutes for another guy who's already a 185-pounder to get Dennis out of there. Now Dennis is getting much better training than he used to. He's training on a daily basis against, you know, legit killers. It might be harder for Kizriev to get the takedown in this spot. So, uh, I'm personally, I'm not laying the juice on Kizriev here. It's more so seeing how he fleshes out at 185 pounds and even fighting a guy that maybe doesn't even deserve to be in the UFC but seeing how he deals with the size difference that he's going to be dealing with here, because if he continues at 185 pounds, he's going to be dealing with these big guys more often than not. So uh, the, the the pick is going to be Kizriev. Um, I think Kizriev... I think he still gets him out of there, probably TKO later in this fight, but I think it's going to be over that one and a half round mark. So uh, yeah, I, I like Kizriv here. I'm going to take him to win by his second or third round TKO, but I'm going to want no action on that fight because I just want to see how Kizriv fills out a 185 and how he deals with a much bigger opponent. And last thing I want to say about Dennis, out of his 10 wins... Only two of them are against guys with winning records. So uh, a little bit of a padded record on his side of things. But that also goes to show what kind of a fighter that we're dealing with here as well. All right. Let's move on to the next fight. We got Dana Batgaril going up against Chris Gutierrez. In terms of odds, we're currently looking at minus 150 for Batgaril and plus 130 the return on Chris Gutierrez. Now, interesting line movement on this fight throughout fight week. Uh, Batgaril got down to about minus 170 on certain spots, and now the money coming back in on Gutierrez, uh, bringing Batgaril back to about minus 150. Now, Gutierrez is, you know, everybody's favorite fighter over the last couple fights because he's going out there and he's implementing a calf-kicking game. That's something that a lot of fighters have found difficult to deal with in the past. However, this fight kind of reminds me of Mark Casey against Rafael Faziev. Now, I'm not saying that Batgaril is the next Rafael Faziev, but the one thing that Mark Casey shares with Chris Gutierrez was their knack for the calf-kicking game, right? If you guys go back and watch a couple fights leading up to the Fizia fight for DKC, that was his bread and butter. He would chew up that calf kick of the opponent of his opponent and then just start letting his hands go more than likely having success after that. But it's all building upon the calf kicking game, which is exactly what Chris Gutierrez has done very successfully since his Vince Morales fight. But if you take away the calf kicking game, you're left with a guy that's somewhat low volume, you know, all, more than likely always on his back foot doesn't really have a crazy wrestling game either and then what do you get you're, you're taking away the calf kick and now you're fighting a, a really good striker and did not back real who's very precise with his strikes has a ton of power and is decent output as well that's where my, my question marks in terms of the steam coming in on Gutierrez come with because I think that back real is a seasoned enough striker to be prepared for a calf kicking game whether it's checking those calf kicks or countering every time Gutierrez throws calf kick himself I don't think that Gutierrez is this master at, at calf kicking that nobody's going to be able to solve. I think that Bakriel has a good enough striking game that he should be more than ready for that. And we see, we've seen over his last couple of fights, this guy is a killer when it comes to the striking game, especially with landing the big power on his opponents. If Gutierrez slacks a little bit in this fight, he could be taking a canvas nap himself. Gutierrez has never actually been knocked out in his professional MMA career, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here that his durability will hold up, but I think he's going to fall behind on the output and on the volume, especially if Bakrio is able to nullify that calf kicking game. 
So, um, you know, good luck to everybody that's on the Gutierrez side. But I think Denai is the rightful favorite in this spot. And they may believe that his line is a little bit too wide here. But if he takes away that calf kicking game the way that I believe he will, I think he'll look more than minus 150. I think he'll look minus 200, minus 250 in this spot. So I do like Dana Bakriel, the Jackson Wink trained Dana Bakriel. Not many fighters left at that training camp, but uh, he's getting that personalized training at this point in time. Six Gun Gibson is giving him all the work that he needs, and I feel like they'll be more than ready for the Factory X trained Chris Gutierrez. But I'm going to go Dana Bakriel, and I think he wins this fight via decision although i'm not going to count out the uh the ko which is currently sitting at plus 135 but plus 350 for the decision not too bad of a line especially considering the durability that we've been seeing from chris gutierrez over his last couple fights all right let's move on to the next fight here we got carol hosa coming in at minus 220 plus 180 the return on the veteran sarah mcmahon very interesting fight here between Carol Hosa, who's on a four-fight winning streak inside the UFC, taking on the 41-year-old Sarah McMahon, coming off a loss to now champion Juliana Pena. Now, the qualm for uh, McMahon has usually been that she gasses out by the third round and her opponents are able to throw up submissions or just get her out of there uh, due to her exhaustion. She you know forces a lot of her action early in fights especially you know center around takedowns dragging her opponents to the man and just using all of her energy to control them there she does decent work from on top but nothing crazy you know if she's not able to get them get them out of there early she looks pretty exhausted going into that third round and that's where most opponents are able to take advantage of her but just two fights ago she showed us that she can go three rounds if she goes up against a decent uh you know a stylistic opponent and that night she had lena landsberg now she has Carol Hosa, who seems to be on the rise here. Very good striker, a ton of output in her fights. Uh, but we saw that she could go out there and grapple if she needs to, like she did against Jocelyn Edwards. But that's her as the hammer. What is she like as the nail? Because I think more than likely she's going to be the nail in the majority of this fight, especially with McMahon landing takedowns, I think at will. I remember, you know, tape taping carol hosa earlier in her ufc career and remembering that she really had difficulties on the ground with her opponents and i felt like if she faced a legitimate grappler or wrestler she would find some problems but there's a lot of question marks with mcmahon right she's 41 years old and like i said she doesn't really manage her gas tank all that well but if she can go out there and just grind carol hosa to the ground and stay out of submission she could absolutely win this fight and look very good as a plus 185 underdog it's just so hard to to you know sack up and put money on a 41 year old who has gas tank issues right but i just see her landing takedowns when she needs to that's my that's my main concern carol hosa isn't this crazy finisher either right she puts the volume on you she puts the output on you but it doesn't seem like she has that like stopping power and McMahon might be able to survive in certain situations. She would definitely be the stronger of the two. And I think that's going to come in handy in terms of dragging the fight to the ground or even stalling this fight up against the cage if she finds it there, especially in the third round. I just have, you know, a bad feeling about it. So there's a couple ways that you can go about playing this fight, in my opinion. I think it's a 50-50 fight. Again, post-fight, it maybe looks minus 300 for either side. But pre-fight, it's... It's hard to have confidence on the Carol Rosa or Hosa uh, takedown defense as we haven't truly seen it tested since the regional days where it just was very lackluster. So you can play pre-fight, you can play McMahon at plus 185, you're getting great underdog odds, and then play Carol Hosa live probably after round one or even after round two. Or you can play McMahon, uh, uh, McMahon money line and Carol Hosa round three, which is plus 1,000. That's absolutely possible as well. Or maybe even a draw, right? We might see McMahon win the first two rounds and then just get absolutely beaten in the third round but not finished. And then we get a 10-8 and then we get a draw as well. It's live in this fight. But uh, I, I don't... Trust me, I, I'm, I'm big on Carol Hosa, but I think that this is a weird stylistic matchup for her. And I do think that McMahon can make this very, very difficult for her um, But if she's able to land those takedowns and maintain that top control. I'm going to go McMahon as my prediction. I think she wins this fight via decision. Plus 400 is that line. I'd be surprised if she gets the submission here as Carol Hosa is a, a brown belt, although she has been submitted on the regional scene. 
but I, I'm going to go with McMahon. I think the I think the strength is going to be the main difference here. And in wins, women's MMA, something as you know small as strength could have a big uh, difference maker in this fight. It all depends on how McMahon is able to manage her gas tank over the 15 minutes because I see this going the distance. So official prediction is going to be Sarah McMahon. I just don't know if I have the balls to actually go out there and better. But when I play the fight through my mind... I see McMahon winning those two rounds with easy takedowns. And, you know, she does enough in that third round to survive and not get a 10-8 from the Carol Hosa side. So I'm going to go McMahon, and I'm going to take her to win this fight via decision. Next up, we got Neil Magny going up against Max Griffin. We got some heavy odds here on the Neil Magny side, who's coming in at minus 225, plus 190, the return on Max Griffin. Now, uh, it's always interesting when I, you know, want to bet heavily against a guy that I had as my lock than I play last time around. And that's the case here uh, with Max Griffin, as I did have him as a lock than I play against uh, Carlos Condit, and he just inched that fight out. If he went out there and went for takedowns way more than he should have, like he did in that third round, that wouldn't have been as close of a fight as it was. First round was him just off of leg kicks alone. It didn't seem like, excuse me, it didn't seem like Condit could get much going off. Uh, not until the second round where he was having way more success. But even that third round was quite close until we saw Max Griffin land that takedown, land some good shots from on top, and that was enough for him to get his hand raised that night. But it should not have been that close. I think it was a minus 180, minus 175 underdog, or favored in that spot, uh, but he made it look way closer than that. Uh, Max Griffin, you know, decent output, decent wrestling, but he's an average fighter. Neil Magny, on the other hand, that's a guy that I can trust with my money and know that he's going to come out in the winning end more often than not. I've hit him at underdog spots in past fights like Li Jing Liang and even most recently against Jeff Neal because he has a very difficult style to deal with for a lot of fighters. The guy's all action. The guy's all pressure. The guy's go, 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 right? Uh, his striking, you know, it's not the most technical. It's not the nicest, but he puts a pressure on you that forces you to respect him. And more often than not, he, he is able to force his opponents onto their back foot. And then from there, he kind of just touches them up from the outside or engages in the clinch where he's very strong. Like he has that gangly strength for some reason where he's able to just get the underhooks against his opponents, beat them up in those realms and get their back, drag them to the ground and just beat them up in that position. He's just, he is an energizer bunny that's very difficult to deal with for a lot of fighters. And I feel like Max Griffin is one of those guys that he can deal with, with just like that. Now, if uh, Griffin wants to go out there and grapple and try to spam wrestling or anything like that, I'd be surprised if he has any success or, has much success similar to what Michael Chiesa was able to do. Chiesa is very good with his jiu-jitsu, right? He's very heavy from on top. It's very difficult to get that guy off of you, and Neil Magny found that out the hard way. But if you look at any other fight of Neil Magny, whenever he gets taken down, he does a really good job in terms of getting back to his feet, creating scrambles, you know, digging the underhooks, getting the butterfly guard going, and then pushing off and getting back to his feet. He makes his opponents work, and I just don't think that Max Griffin can hold up with that type of pace. I'm not sold that Max Griffin has crazy knockout power either, but it's safe to say that Neil Magny has damn good durability, right? I believe the last time that he got finished was against Santiago Ponzinibbio uh, a handful of years ago, but that was a, a four-round fight where he got his, absolute, his legs absolutely chewed up. Now, I get it. Max Griffin is kind of active with his leg kicks at times, but he's not kicking like Santiago Ponzinibbio is kicking. Guys have tried to implement that kicking game against Neil Magny in the past, but he does a good job in terms of nullifying that by putting pressure on them. It's very difficult to kick the legs when you're on your back foot for the majority of the fight. And that's exactly what I think Neil Magny will be successful with here. I think he can beat him up in the clinch. I, can, I think he can beat him up at range. And I think he even beats him up on the ground. I think it's just a matter of time before Max Griffin is huffing and puffing because Neil Magny just won't stay off of him. He won't give him any room to breathe. Neil Magny is a fighter's fighter. That guy just goes out there and just fights. And it's very difficult to deal with a guy like that. I really like Neil Magny in this spot. I think this line is a little bit of a gift, honestly. I think he makes this look like a minus 400 performance because he's really good at pushing his opponents backwards. And I think that that's where Max Griffin uh, struggles here. Unless Max Griffin pulls out a Hail Mary KO from his ass, I just don't see how he wins this fight. I love Neil Magny in the spot. And last thing I'll say, seems like Magny's been around the sport forever. 
But the guy's actually had a two-year youth advantage in this spot. He's only 34 compared to the 36-year-old Max Griffin. And it seems like Magny still has a couple years left of performing at uh, at a level that he's going to continue to turn away these guys that are looking to crack the top 15. Magny will always be that top 15 to 10 guy, at least for the next three years, I'd say. At least a solid three years, he'll be that guy. And I just don't think that Max Griffin is ready to crack that top 15. Uh, sure, Carlos Condit's a good win. But Neil Magny is going to work, make you work way more. And I think he's going to struggle dealing with that pressure. So give me Neil Magny here. Even minus 230, I wouldn't mind a straight bet on that. I think he's more than worth the chalk in this spot. I think he gets it done via decision. I'd kind of be surprised if he actually gets, um, if he gets Max Griffin out of there. All right, next up, we got Mark Casey going up against Vyacheslav Borshev. This kicks off the main card in terms of odds. We currently have uh, Borshev sitting at minus 155, plus 135 the return on uh, Mark Casey. Now, uh, Vyacheslav opened up at minus 155. He got bet down to minus 200 at a certain point, but a ton of money coming in on the veteran Mark Casey, bringing that line down back to uh, minus 155 for a Slava clause. Now, Slava Claus coming off a great performance against Dakota Bush back in January, where he finished him via body shot KO. Beautifully timed, beautiful, beautifully placed. Look, I'm, I'm even stumbling on my words like uh, Borshev as if he had hit me to the liver as well. But the guy is absolutely nasty with his body shots. He hurt even Chris Duncan uh, before finishing him as well in that fight to the body. But uh, yeah, he put the a complete ass whooping on Dakota Bush. Now, Borshev is like the, if I'm not mistaken, the kickboxing coach over there at Team Alpha Male. Gotta believe that he's working on his grappling game. But if you guys look back at his regional run, that's where he seems to show the biggest flaw. But it's not a huge flaw because he's done a good job in terms of nullifying it. And the majority of his fights, always getting back to his feet and just dishing out the damage with his striking. Mark T. Casey will likely have the speed advantage in this fight, but I think he'll have the overall mixed martial arts advantage too. I wouldn't be surprised to see him go out there and try to take Borshev to the ground. I don't know how successful you'll be with controlling Borshev there, but I do think that he'll add that to kind of a couple of things that Borshev is going to have to worry about, which won't allow Borshev to really get off on, you know, his stalking type of game. The guy likes to go out there, throw combinations, end with head kicks, really dig to the body. But when he's having to, you know, deal with the threat of a takedown, deal with the threat of level changes, and, you know, even the speed of DA Casey, I think he could struggle in this spot. I'm interested to see if D.A. Casey goes back to his calf-kicking ways. I feel like Borshev is more than seasoned enough of a striker to uh, nullify that, but it would be interesting to see D.A. Casey actually go back to it and see if he can find any early success with it. But I think as an overall MMA fighter, D.A. Casey has a little bit more to bring to the table, not to mention the experience that he has. Gone up against much better fighters than, than Borshev in the past, right? Borshev could be the shit. But I still have some question marks in terms of what he brings to the table against legitimate competition. And this is his first fight against legitimate competition. I'm not saying that D.A. Casey deserves to be a giant favor or anything in this spot. But I do favor him ever so slightly because I think he can put together a better 15-minute fight than we're going to see from Borshev. Now, Borshev could, you know, starch him and he could get him out of there in the first round or two. Then, of course, you know, he's going to be worth that minus 155. But I do like what D.A. Casey brings to the table here. And I wouldn't mind an underdog shot on him as uh, I feel like he has been proving a lot more in his fights compared to what Borshev has been going up against and the level of competition he's been going up against as well. So give me uh, give me Mark D. Casey here. Uh, even by decision at plus 300, I don't think that's a bad spot. I think he goes out there and does some solid work, puts together a full MMA game, and uh, hopefully shoots for takedowns because if he doesn't, I think Borshev will have uh, a solid amount of success on the feet. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Alexei Olenek going up against Alir Latifi in a heavyweight fight. In terms of odds, we got minus 190 on Latifi and plus 165 the return on Alexei Olenek. This is going to be a car crash, right? This is two heavyweights that have interesting styles. Obviously, Olenek, uh, hundreds of fights at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it seems like he has a, a ton of fights under his record. But more often than not, he wants to drag the fight to the ground where he can implement his superior jiu-jitsu. Latifi, on the other hand, power puncher, but also likes to go for the takedowns where he can use his strength to really bully guys into positions and kind of just control them in certain spots. 
That's how we beat Tanner Bozer after giving up a pretty bad second round. He goes out there and just takes Bozer to the ground and just grinds him out over the last four minutes of that fight, takes home a decision victory. He only landed 10 significant strikes in that fight as well, which is very interesting. But in this fight against Olenek, I'd be surprised if he looks to get this fight to the ground. Maybe he trusts his, trusts his top pressure and thinks that he can stay out of any trouble that Olenek might throw up from off of his back or any reversals that Olenek might look for. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that for Latifi, man. Uh, I, I think that Olenek might be able to find reversals, find his way on top, find a choke, find an arm, whatever it might be. That's why I don't, I, I wouldn't, you know, really suggest that Latifi looks to get this fight to the ground. Uh, throughout Latifi's career in the UFC, he's landed 16 takedowns. That seems to be his go-to. But he does have a ton of power in his hands, and I'm hoping that he goes out there and trusts that power and puts it on Olenek, eventually finding that knockout. Olenek is, does not mind being reckless on the feet in terms of trying to close the distance. He throws with heavy power in his own right just so that he can clinch up with his opponent and try to find a way to get the fight to the ground. And he doesn't even care if he has to pull guard because he wants to get the fight to the ground because he knows he'll either find a reversal or even a submission off of his back of some sort. Maybe even as Ezekiel choke. Who knows? But the, the you know the, there's two ways I can see this fight going. I could see you know a clinch fest where both guys are trying to assert dominance, but Latifi's strength will more than likely be the difference maker, allowing him to stay safe in the clinch or even on the ground. Or Olenek's reckless entries into some of these exchanges might get him knocked the fuck out. <laughs> and I'm not even counting out a possible Olenek knockout either. Like he could possibly clip uh, Latifi and get him out of there. So I'm seeing the over one and a half currently sitting around minus 160, minus 170, meaning the under is around plus 140. I don't mind the under one and a half. I'm expecting this to be a car crash right off the bat, and I'm expecting somebody to get their head taken off almost immediately. So there might be the cheeky betters trying to take the over, thinking this is going to be a clinch fest. But given Olenek's recklessness at times, I think he's going to pay for that, or Latifi might get clipped clearly on the chin here, and he might get put out. So I'm going to go, I'm actually going to go Latifi first round knockout, but the under uh, one and a half is probably what I'm going to look, be looking at most and will likely take a shot on the under one and a half as a, a possible dog that I play at plus 140. But uh, Latifi will be the pick. I think he keeps this fight upright, but I think eventually he'll find that knockout and put out old man Olenek. Trust me, the fan of me is, ter- is, is cheering for Olenek. I, I hope Olenek actually gets it done, but I think that Latifi will get him out of there. All right, let's move on to what could quite possibly be the number one contender fight for the flyweights. We got Askar Askarov coming in at minus 350, Kai Car France coming in at plus 285. Very fun fight here. Uh, and like I said, could easily set up the next title contender. Now, news just came out earlier today that more than likely the UFC is going to be rebooking Brandon Moreno against Davidson Figueredo, number four in July. But Whoever picks up a win this weekend will more than likely be able to get that next shot at the end of this year. I I just don't see many guys stopping Askarov. You know, Askarov, UFC debut, in my opinion, came away with a gift of a draw, as I believe that Brandon Moreno did a really good job in that fight, nullifying the type of success Askarov was trying to have in that fight, especially with his grappling. And I think that's going to be Askarov's toughest fight. But in this fight against Kaikar France, I, I just can't unsee Askarov completely throwing around Kaikar France in the grappling realm. We saw Hajiria Bantri in two fights ago have success controlling Kaikar France for the majority of that first round before he got knocked out. But I think that Askarov is going to put Kaikar France through the grinder even more and make it very difficult for him to have much success at all. Car France is quick. He has some good striking. Obviously, he has some knockout power, which he's shown off in his last two fights. Obviously, most recently against Cody Garbrandt, but that is Cody Garbrandt. Cody, no chin Garbrandt, pretty much, right? Askarov, from what we've seen to this point, has a damn good chin. You know, very rarely do you ever see him rocked or hurt or even any type of danger in the striking realm, but he's going to have to mind his P's and Q's here against a guy in Car France who could definitely go out there and find the knockout. Um, the only time we really seen Kai Car France deal with a heavy grapple approach or grappling approach was against Mark De La Rosa, who went one of seven on takedowns against him. But we know that Askarov is on a completely different level when it comes to the to the grappling realm. Even though Askarov has a 28% takedown defense rate, he still managed to land 11 takedowns in four UFC fights. That 28% takedown accuracy rate tells me that he likes to go out there and shoot takedowns. He will be persistent with the takedown, even if he doesn't get it on the first, second, third, or fourth attempt. 
but his best work comes against the cage. And that's where I think that Kai Car France is going to struggle to get away from uh, Askarov. We saw Askarov deal with the guy who's similar size as Kai Car France in his last fight against Joseph Benavides. And we saw him just absolutely ragdoll Joseph Benavides in those spots. And I was backing Benavides in that spot. You know, I think a lot of people were forgetting what kind of scrambler and grappler Joseph was. But Askarov shut all of that down and made it look very dominant as well in that performance. You know, we, we could maybe attribute it to the, it being the ghost of Joseph Benavides, but I thought, if anything, Benavides would still be able to hold his own in the grappling realm. Unfortunately, he was not able to, and Askarov absolutely dominated him. We've seen Askarov beat guys like Alexandre Pantoja as well, who's a very high-level flyweight, who could possibly beat Kaikar France in his own right. So I, I like Askarov quite a lot. I think he'll do a very good job of uh, of dealing with Kai Carfrance, pushing him up against the cage. Uh, you know, dealing with the clinch wrestling is going to be a very tough task for Kai Carfrance because he needs that space to let his striking game go. If he's going to be backing up the entire time and dealing with the pressure of Askarov, he's not going to have much success at all in this spot. And even before the last two knockouts of Kai Carfrance, you know, he's known as a guy that's a heavy hitter. But it, it was 10 fights before that that he had recorded his last KO. So maybe it could be, you know, the the durability issues of Cody Garbrandt as to why Kai Carfrance was able to get that knockout. But even the finish he got of Hajiri Bontrain, that was kind of impressive as well. But again, nothing on tape has shown me that Askarov has a chin issue or has a durability issue. I think he's going to time those uh, strikes very well, close the distance, push him up against the cage, and drag this fight to the ground and just grind his way to a decision victory. So I do like... Um, I do like Askarov a good amount here. Last thing I'll say, it, it, at times it does seem like Askarov is a little bit of a slow starter. So if if Kai can get off on him early here, maybe around one KO is plausible. But after that, I think he just absolutely puts him through the ringer and the knockout power of Kai will more than likely diminish, especially as the minutes pass by with him getting put through the grinder. So I'm going to go Askar Askarov. Uh, and I think he dominates this fight pretty much the entirety of it and he wins this fight via decision all right let's move on to the next fight here i believe oh, we got three fights left and it is the hometown boy matt brown going up against veteran brian barbarena we are pretty much looking at a pick em fight here with matt brown coming in around minus 110 brian barbarena minus 110 as well these guys were scheduled a couple times in the last couple years to fight now hopefully they're going to finally get it done this weekend but good god am i looking forward to it I tweeted out earlier this uh, today uh, talking about how Matt Brown performing in front of his home state, his home crowd. There's no way he doesn't deliver on violence. And he has a willing dance partner in Brian Barbarena who's more than likely going to oblige with a violent type fight. So I'd be surprised if there's much grappling going on in this fight. I do think that we'll see Barbarena, you know, stuff any type of grappling attempt that Matt Brown will try to throw at him. And then from there, I think they're just going to be forced to strike and just bang it out. Matt Brown did hang up the gloves uh, back in 2017 or 18, I believe it was, after he knocked out Diego Sanchez, but the love for the game came knocking on his door once again, and since then he's been, uh, he put together a 2-2 two two record, three of those fights actually coming via stoppage as well. Uh, I think both guys have shown a little bit of diminishing durability. Brian Barbarina obviously hurt plenty of times against Jason Witt, uh, but you know dealing with Matt Brown's power is going to be another issue for him as well. But even Matt Brown, I think he's going to struggle with the, his own durability issues. Not to mention he's like 41, 42 years old. Brian Barbarina is a younger guy, you know, less damage on his body. But I do think he'll eventually find that knockout blow on, against Matt Brown here, which is why I really like the fight doesn't go to decision, which is currently around minus 130 or minus 140, depending on what book you're looking at. Now, this fight reminds me of the Paul Craig and Nikita Krilov fight we just had this past week. Simply because, you know, the, the last three fights for Nikita Krilov all went to, uh, to a decision, but before that were all finishes. I'm talking 32 straight finishes before his last three fights. And they had the, uh, the fight doesn't go to decision roughly around minus 200. I think that was a gift of a line, and I think it was just a little bit of recency bias considering the couple of decision uh, fights that uh, Krilov went to. But even looking at the other side for Paul Craig, never been to a decision outside of that one draw that he went to against uh, Shogun Hua. Now, I think we're getting the same thing here with both guys who are mainly known as finishers or even be able to get finished on their own end. Let me just quickly pull up the number here in terms of fights that we have between the two. Um, yeah, 
49 out of 65 fights total combined have finished inside the distance for Brian uh, Barbarena and Matt Brown. That's 75%. Right now, the line indicates a 55, 57% uh, chance of this fi fight finishing inside the distance. So right there, you're already getting about 18% uh, you know, value if you do go out there and try to you know, mimic what, that, what historically happens in their fights. And that's the fight not going to a decision. So I, I am leaning the Brian Barbarena side. He's not the 41-year-old. He's the one that can still go, go out there and throw massive heat in his shots. And I'm expecting this fight to mainly play out in the striking realm. And if that's the case, I think one of these guys is going to go out there and get the knockout. I think it's going to be Barbarena. Last thing I'll say about this fight, more often than not, when you look at the statistics in Brian Barbarena's fights, 30% of his strikes go to the body. It wasn't that long ago that a lot of people kept saying that Brian uh, Matt Brown has a horrible durability, especially to the body, because there were you know several fights where he had gotten hurt to the body or even finished by shots to the body. I'd be surprised if the veteran like Brian Barbarena didn't pick up on something like that and actually go out there and try to implement that himself and try to get my, uh, Matt Brown out of there. So I'm going to go Brian Barbarena as the pick, but rather than picking a side here, again, the odds are great on either side. So if you have conviction on one side or the other, I'd go with the money line. But I would cover both instances here and take the fight doesn't go to decision because I think more than likely this fight finishes inside the distance and we see uh, Brian Barbarena get his hand raised via knockout. So uh, like I said, official prediction there, Barbarena inside the distance, which currently sits at plus 315. I think that's a steal. And not to mention Barbarena in round three, because I do think that Matt Brown slows down later that fights go, uh, plus 1050 on Barbarena round three. I think that's damn good as well. So give me Barbarena inside the distance, but give me the fight doesn't go to decision as the main bet in that fight. All right, two fights left. Let me quickly wet the whistle and let's get this thing done with. <clears throat> All right, <clears throat> next up. Very puzzling that this fight is in the co-main event slot, but it is what it is. Maybe they're trying to build up one of the fighters here. We have Alexa Grosso coming in at minus 235, plus 200 the return on Joanne Wood. Very intriguing fight here. We got the obviously rising star in Alexa Grosso and then Joanne Wood who seems to be on her way out. Again, puzzling uh, positioning for this fight. But what I find most intriguing about this fight are the odds, right? Obviously Alexa Grosso should be the favorite, but the, the one issue I have with this fight is if Joanne Wood is able to go out there, not get finished, and put up the output that she normally puts up, this fight's going to be close. Now, I get it. Grasso's the more technical fighter. She'll likely land the better strikes, but she needs to make them look significant. If she doesn't make them look significant, and if both girls are landing at the same clip, this fight's a toss-up, right? I believe Grasso has the better striking. I believe she has the better technique. I believe she has the better footwork. But if Wood is going out there and putting up just as much output or more, the judges might see that. And they might be like, oh, okay, she's more active. Maybe she hit her more. Maybe she deserves a decision. Grasso needs to make it look clear. Grasso needs to land shots that are going to pop Joanne Wood's head back. She needs she needs shots that's either going to drop Joanne Wood. Speaking of which, she hasn't recorded a knockdown inside the UFC. So that is a little bit of a concern. I don't think she's even recorded a finish in the UFC either. Let me just quickly uh, confirm that because I believe... Yeah, she got finished by Tatiana Suarez back in 2018. But yeah, she hasn't recorded a finish since 2014, almost, uh, you know, just about, just over seven years ago when she finished Lita Gray, a 4-1 fighter. That was her sixth ever fight. And she finished her in the first round. That was her only finish. So, you know, is she going to finish an aging and, and withering Joanne Wood? Who knows? But it needs to be clear and it needs to be decisive, which is why I can't be uber confident on the Alexa Grasso side. Don't get me wrong. I'm still picking Grasso to win. She should win this fight. But I think the odds are just a little bit too wide on this spot and not taking into consideration that Joanne Wood is always in close fights as long as she's not getting finished, like the Jennifer Maya fight or the Tyler Santos fight. But given Alexa Grasso's history, she's not much of a finisher in her own right. Nor does she record many knockdowns, if any knockdowns at all. So those are the big question marks for me. For me, I take the fight goes to decision at minus 250 over Alexa Grasso. 
because I think this goes the full 25 minutes and Grasso sitting at minus 235 you're only paying you know 15 cents more to 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 take the fight goes to decision and possibly cover a robbery which is absolutely in play in a spot like this so I'm picking Alexa Grasso to win she should go out there and land the better strikes not saying she's going to land the more strikes but she will land the more she will land the more significant strikes, in my opinion, in terms of the ones that will show optically to the judges. See the head popping back of Joanne Wood. But if she doesn't, that's where I'm just too iffy about this fight. I'm staying away, other than the fight goes to decision. Uh, but I do see this going the full 15. I will lean with the younger Alexa Grasso in the spot. But don't be at all surprised if Joanne Wood is able to go out there and pull off the pull off the upset just off of volume alone. But official prediction, Lexco Alexo Grasso, even via decision minus 115, that's much better than playing her up uh, straight up. But who knows how much of a cliff Joanne Wood has fallen off as well. What if her durability is completely shot at this point in time, right? Tyler Santos was able to get it out of there, but Santos is way more of a, a, a aggressive and meaner fighter than Alexa Grasso in terms of getting finishes. All right. I'm sure I've made my point in terms of how close that fight could actually end up being, but I'm not going to be that value guy going to bet Joanne Wood in this spot. I just would rather stay away from this fight than bet any side at all. All right, that brings us to our main event of the night. We got minus 410 on Curtis Blaze and plus 310 the return on Chris Dacus. I really like Curtis Blaze in the spot. Now, some people might be, you know, turned off just because of the knockout losses that Curtis Blades has taken in the past, but I don't think that Chris Dawkins presents the raw power that guys like uh, Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou have been able to since those were really the only losses on Curtis, Curtis Blades' record. Right, Dawkins does have knockout power, but I just think it's required that it's behind combinations and you know uh you know having the speed advantage over his opponents i think that's where he's able to get those knockouts his hand speed is great you know he more often than not is able to find the chin of his opponents but this is not alexei olenek this is not shamil abdul rahimov right this is curtis blades who does well from fighting at range right even against Derek lewis a couple fights ago he was chewing up Derek lewis from distance but it was just his knack of, okay, I need to get this fight to the ground, so I'm going to shoot a takedown at a certain point. Derek Lewis is more than ready for that and made him pay for it. But I think that Blades, even if he gets touched by Chris Dawkins here, should be able to get through it, should be able to get his hands around him, and then drag him to the ground. He is a big heavyweight, and I think he's going to really showcase that strength advantage here over Chris Dawkins, who's been looking to get his weight down and try to use his, you know, his mobility and his footwork a little bit more to get that advantage over his opponents. But it's going to be very difficult to do so when Chris Blades is, you know, closing distance with that double leg and just absolutely mows him over and gets him to the ground. And, uh, you know, I don't think he'll have too much issues in terms of passing his guard, getting to dominant positions, and either getting ground and pound off from on top or even finding a submission of his own. I like Blades a decent amount in this, like I said. I think it's very easy to break down this fight. Blades can play on the feet for a bit, and I think he's rangy enough and mobile enough to stay away from the big power of Dawkins, or even use you know his takedowns as counters whenever Dawkins decides to throw his combinations or throw his strikes. That's where I think that we'll see Blades get his takedowns going. Even if Blades somehow corrals and pushes him up against the cage, I think it's just a matter of time before he drags the fight to the ground. Um, I think Blades inside the distance here is very live as I don't think that Chris Dawkins will provide much uh, issues or much resistance off of his back which will allow Blades to kind of just you know glide into positions where he wants to and then he'll find the one where he can either posture up or find a submission and get him out of there. So yeah, I like Chris uh, Curtis Blades a lot. You guys can parlay him out here. I think I'd be surprised if Dawkins gets the finish. Dawkins KO is obviously a decent hedge. However, I just don't think it's going to be needed here i think blades can go deep in this, into this fight if required i'm not sure if docus will be able to and uh, the longer that this fight goes i have question marks about docus's ability to maintain his power from the first round onwards so uh yeah i'm going blades i think he runs through uh, chris docus here quite easily i think he gets him out of there probably within the by round two or round three so uh, official prediction curtis blades let's say round two tkl vo via ground and pound all right that is a wrap on the podcast uh it feels nice to actually do it in one shot i didn't feel that bad although i really need to figure out how to you know get 
from my notes up there and get it somewhere where I'm not always looking up to my right. I'm thinking of getting like an iPad or something that I can just look at my notes uh, just right down in front of me so it's easier rather than always just looking up at my uh, notes up on my screen to my top right. But I liked it, felt good. Uh, I might continue to do it. Depends on what the reception is going to be like. If you guys enjoyed this one shot type of thing, let me know. If you guys prefer the, you know, every time I, I finish uh, researching a breakdown and, and releasing it as soon as I'm done doing the breakdown, let me know that as well. But uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. Once again, shout out to my guy Flying uh, Brian J or yeah, Flying Brian. Uh, again, I bought the shirt. It's not like he sponsored me or anything like that. Love the shirt. Uh, ch check out the Patreon as well. Right now, again, this is Tuesday. I have my Lock of the Night play posted on the Patreon. It will drop for free to the public on Friday. Lines may not be the same. That's something I can't guarantee, but that's the obvious, you know, uh, that's the obvious benefit and perk of being on the Patreon. You get my bet as soon as I drop it. Not to mention, I'm going to be looking to get into UFC 273 in the next couple of days. And I know it's two weeks away, but I want to get into it as early as possible. And you guys will start to see the best bets and props start to drop on the Patreon as well for that fight, uh, for that event specifically. So make sure you guys check out the Patreon. Link is in the description below. Five bucks a month. Best bets and props article. A great Discord community. A prize picks tips. A bunch of other great stuff on there. And one more thing that I'm looking to add there um but i'm going to see what the patreon members think first before i actually pitch it to the public here secondly make sure you guys check out cool bet use promo code mma lotn2 that's the number two and they'll match your initial deposit up to 200 bucks check out their platform great website you can parlay props you can have a serious degen uh moment when you're on there as well trust me they're very good at what they do and great analytical uh tools for you to use to kind of see how you're betting what you're good at what you're not good at and how you can improve your game as well so make sure you guys check out cool bet uh all right that is a wrap Appreciate everybody checking out the podcast. Hit that like and subscribe. A ton of other great content coming for you guys throughout the week. Thursday, propping you up with my guy, John. Friday, uh, Ultimate Wayne Show. Haven't announced the guests yet, but I will do that as soon as I can, as soon as I confirm them. And then Saturday, Fight Day Live Chat, 1 p.m. Eastern. That's it. Then we got one weekend off. No UFC on the April 2nd weekend, so we can take a little bit of a breather. But we're right back at it for UFC 273 the following week. All right, love you guys. Appreciate the support. Oh, last thing I want to say. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the the props you should have bet uh, video that I dropped for UFC London. That's something I'm going to look to do for every single event as well. Uh, a quick five, six minute video where I go over the best props that cashed on the previous event. I'm hoping that it you know picks up some steam, especially with people that don't really like betting in particular, but they also just want to see you know what prop bets actually hit as well. So uh, I'm hoping that picks up some steam because I think that could be a pretty big series and very easy to do as well. So go check that out on my channel as well if you haven't already, if you want to know the best prop bets that cast for UFC London. All right, I've been jabbering too much. My throat's really feeling it. Appreciate the love, appreciate the support. Hit that like, hit that subscribe. Good luck on your bets this week, and I'll see you guys throughout the week for the rest of my content.